Good morning. It's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us in a, just a, a number of great, great songs. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise your name. We praise you, the one who set us free. Father, we praise you that death no longer has a grip on us. We praise you that you have broken every chain, that there's salvation in your name, the name of Christ. And Father, we praise you as we recognize, even as we sang this morning, these words, that they are in the past tense. Father, these are things you have done for those of us whose hope is in you. We praise you that there is that past tense to the hope which we usually think of as a future tense. So Father, as we look into your word and talk about hope this morning, it's my prayer that you would help us to reorient our thinking a little bit and and see the past tense of our future hope. And I just pray that uh, you would open our ears to hear your you speaking to us this morning, that your spirit would be upon me, that I might speak your truth, and that your spirit would be upon all those here, that they might hear your truth, and that it might uh, change, change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are beginning this morning a ser- Advent series. We'll be talking about hope this morning. Um, next week will be peace, then joy, and then love. And we have uh, a wonderful slate of speakers prepared for you, so I hope you're looking forward with anticipation to each one. That's accepting me. You have to put up with me this morning. And I'm going to be speaking on hope. Hope. <clears throat> it's been said that it springs eternal in the human breast. When we hear an encouraging word, it fills our hearts. At Christmas time, the familiar carol tells us there's a thrill of it. Hope. When tragedy strikes, it can seem all is lost. When times are tough, we can come to the point where we give up all of it. Hope. For a church, almost one year now without a pastor, when plans fall through, when we see members continuing to move out of the area, when many a senior saint is now absent from the body and present with the Lord, leaving those of us who are alive and remain, sometimes growing wearier by the day, hope. I think it providential that we come at this hour of our need and on this first Sunday of Advent to be reminded of hope. What is it? Why do we need it? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Why should we trust in it? How does it benefit us? This morning I want to answer these questions by looking at the story of Jesus' presentation at the temple in Luke 2. If you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 2, verse 21, and if you're using your pew Bible, it's page 1216, 
put a placeholder in there or, or maybe your thumb. We'll get to that story in just a few minutes. But before we go any further, I want to make sure we're all speaking the same language. I want to define hope. Actually, I want to redefine it. Well, okay, I want to re-redefine it. You see, Scripture defines what hope is for the human heart, but the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil are hard at work to redefine it. So if we want to know what hope truly is, we need to re-redefine it, if you follow me. We need to take back the original meaning of the word. I'm going to give you a definition of hope right up front, and then we'll look at the story of Jesus' presentation at the temple in Luke 2 to explore the scriptural roots of that definition and see that definition in action. So first, the biblical definition of hope. Hope is a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. I'll say that again, and hopefully you'll hear, it, hopefully you'll hear that a number of times through the sermon. Hope is a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. You see, hope, along with faith and love, is one of the most misused and abused words in our contemporary culture. And I think that's because the world, the flesh, and the devil want to keep us confused in an attempt to veil the truth and the power of hope from our eyes. Think about it. How do we usually use the word hope? When we say hope, we usually mean little more than we are thinking positive thoughts about what we desire for the future. And typically, the outcome is beyond all control and more often than not, unlikely to turn out favorably. We, we say things like, I hope we don't have a cold winter. I hope the Jets win a game today. <clears throat> I hope there's no traffic on the LIE. Hopeless, right? <laughs> I might be exaggerating a little bit for, for a fact, but you get the idea. I hope. <clears throat> to the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's what hope is. Positive thoughts about a future beyond all control. It's a throwaway, passing thought, a desire that may or may not be met. But this is not biblical hope. This is not gospel hope. Always in the New Testament, hope, the Greek word is elpis. We've been learning about love and agape, and we can learn the Greek word for hope too, maybe. Elpis, it's a pretty simple one, right? It means expectation of good. Always in the New Testament, expectation of good. And when it's used in connection with the believer's faith, it means a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. Very specific. We can find the elements of this definition in any number of places. We can look to 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, where Paul writes, Now faith, hope, love, abide these three. He tells us right there that hope is a gift from God and that it lasts forever. Or we could go to Romans 5.2 that tells us that we exalt in the hope of the glory of God because our peace with God and his grace toward us is received by faith and based on the finished work of Jesus. Or we could go to Romans 5.5 that tells us that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out within our hearts. Or to Hebrews 6.19 that tells us that our hope in the promises of God is 
quote, an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast, and one that enters within the veil. In our passage for this morning, Luke 2, starting at 21, God has given us a picture of hope that is very clear and rich. And I think as we meditate on this passage together, I hope, I hope that you will see that these truths that I've just spoken of from other scriptures are brought to life and illustrated for you. So let's read this passage together. Luke 2, starting in verse 21. It's the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, this is Jesus, before Jesus' circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought Jesus up to the temple to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer also a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that <clears throat> thoughts, from many, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In this passage, we find Mary and, and Joseph, it's 40 days after Jesus' birth, and they're bringing him up from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem, as we were just read, to fulfill the law's dual requirements. First, that every firstborn son be set apart as holy to God. And second, that a burnt offering and a sin offering be made for the atonement of the mother. In God's providence, as Mary and Joseph faithfully fulfill the requirements of the law so that Jesus could himself fulfill all righteousness, at that same time, God faithfully fulfills a promise to his servant Simeon. Simeon, as we just read, was a righteous and devout man, verse 25. He loved God and he devoted himself to keeping the law. But more than that, Simeon had an intimacy with God. Verse 25 says, The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. 
And also we read that the Holy Spirit miraculously revealed the future to him. The Holy Spirit revealed that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 26. From the fact that Jesus uh, said, Simeon took Jesus in his arms, verse 28, said a blessing over him, verse 30 through 32, and prophesied regarding his future, verse 34 and 35, it's not unreasonable to conclude that Simeon was a priest serving there in the temple. And there are traditions that assert that he was a priest, maybe even the high priest that year. We don't know that for sure, but one thing we know for certain, we know that Simeon was looking for something. He was looking, verse 25, for the consolation of Israel. See, Simeon had what we call today a bucket list. Simeon had a bucket list, and there was only one item on it, that he would see the Lord's Christ. Simeon confidently expected that before he died, he would see the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one to be the glory of his nation, of his nation Israel, and the Redeemer of Jerusalem, and a light to all the world. Simeon had hope. Simeon had a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory would be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. There's much more we can learn about hope from God's gracious dealings with Simeon. Some of these questions I mentioned already. What is hope? Why do we need it? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Why should we trust in it? How does it benefit us? Well, what is it? Well, we've already re-redefined it. Hope, we said, and I've said it a couple times now, is a God-given, try to hammer it into your heads, God-given, joyful and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. So we've re-redefined it. But I have five more aspects of hope that pop out of this story from Simeon's, of Simeon's hope. And they all start with an R. We've already re-redefined it. We're going to look at the requirement for hope, if you're taking notes, the requirement for hope, in other words, why do we need it? The recipe for hope, in other words, what is that hope made of? What does it look like? The revelation of hope, in other words, how, how, how can we recognize it? The reason for hope, why should we trust to hope? And what is our hope based on? And then there's the result of hope. What does hope do in us, and how does it benefit us? So the requirement for hope, the recipe for hope, the revelation of hope, the reason for hope, and the result of hope. So first of all, the requirement for hope. Simeon's story illustrates the, the reason that we need hope. Because of the situation Simeon found himself in, because of the situation Israel was in, indeed, because of the situation that we are all in, there is a need for hope. There's more than a need, there's a requirement. If I can put it a little more strongly or requirement for hope. See, something was wrong with Simeon's world. The world was not as it ought to be. God had promised that Israel would be a great nation, that the kingdom of Israel would be established forever, and that through Israel all the world would be blessed. But at the time of Jesus' birth, it was Rome that became, had become a great nation, and Israel a battleground, a buffer zone, a stop along trade routes. Her people were, were subjugated to occupying Rome, and on her throne sat, sat Herod the Great, who morally was anything but great. He was a self-serving political maneuverer who had made a habit of murder to maintain his status as a Roman client king. It was hard to see how all the world w would be blessed 
through such a nation. Add to this the silence of heaven. In ages past, we know from the Old Testament that God chose Israel. He nurtured her, preserved her. He spoke to her through kings and priests and prophets. But as Simeon climbed the temple steps that day, there had been no prophet for 400 years. Unless, of course, you count Zacharias, who had prophesied just about four months ago that his son John was the one who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. So Simeon knew something was wrong. He knew that the world was not as it should be and that it needed God to fix it. That's why it says he was looking for the consolation of Israel in verse 25. Consolation, it's an interesting word. In Greek, it's paraklesin, from the same root verb parakleo, from which we get the word paraklete. You may be familiar with that word. It means the comforter, who more commonly we refer to as the Holy Spirit. Paraklesin, it means a summons to someone's aid or an encouragement for comfort. Simeon is looking for Israel's paraklesin, for a summon to be issued for Israel's aid, encouragement, and comfort. He's looking for an advocate to come to Israel's defense. Simeon knows something is wrong. He knows that the world was not as it should be. If this were not true, he would not be looking for aid and for comfort for his people. So Simeon's acknowledging that need. And in that need, Simeon has hope. You see, where there's a need, there's hope. I believe that everyone has hope of some kind. Hope is, I would think, necessary to, to life. I mean, why do we breathe? Why do we eat? Why do we learn? Why do we seek joy? Why do we save money? Why do we even hang out with people? It's because we have some kind of hope for the future. We have a confident expectation of a future result. I would say that hope, true hope, is a God-given necessity for life. And if we really, truly, honestly were to give up hope, we'd just stop doing these things. We'd stop breathing or stop eating or stop learning or stop seeking joy or stop saving money or stop talking to people. We'd stop because we'd see no future value in these things. But we do see, do these things because we do have hope that they will bring a future result. We have hope that when we eat, it will sustain us. We have hope that when we save money, we'll be able to afford what we need. We have hope that when we seek joy, we will find it. I'd say that if we're honest with ourselves, we have a confident expectation that we will find, that we will find what we're looking for. If we didn't, if we truly didn't, we truly abandon all hope. We just go off into a corner and die. So in that sense, hope is a necessity to life. Of course, these are common everyday needs and hopes that I'm speaking of. Simeon's need, Israel's need, indeed our need, and therefore the requirement for Simeon's need, Israel's, requirement for Simeon's, Israel's, and our hope are on a much grander scale than just these common everyday needs and hopes. Simeon's problem, Israel's problem, is deeper even than Herod's corruption and Rome's occupation. Israel's current state is, is merely a symptom of an underlying disease, merely the flowering of a plant with some very deep roots. The underlying disease, the deep root of the problem, and I'm sure most of you know what it is, is sin. Though Israel was chosen, though God had loved Israel, though he had forgiven them time and time again, though he had rescued them time and time again, though he had blessed them many times over, despite all his graciousness toward them, time and again, the people of Israel had forgotten God. 
They did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. They did not love their neighbors as they loved themselves. And as a consequence of, the sin, of this sin, Israel was under God's wrath. We need look no farther than that last prophet to Israel, Malachi, whose words surely weighed on Simeon's heart as he looked for Israel's consolation. If you look in Malachi 1, you see that Israel's devotion to God has grown cold. The priests are offering not the best, not the required unblemished sacrifice, but they're offering the, blame, the blind, the sick, and the lame. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6, says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And if I am a father, this is God speaking, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we, have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor instead? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Against, and against those who dishonor God, God's wrath burns like a furnace. If you skip down to Malachi 4, verse 1, we read, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The prophets are, are clear, Israel's sin is great. The coming judgment is dire. And so Israel's need is great, and her need for hope is great. As we read such prophecies, it is imperative to understand that it's not just against Israel, that we individually are no better off than Israel. We too have sinned. We too have forsaken God, our Creator. We too have not loved our neighbor. We number among the arrogant and the evildoer. And we too are under God's holy and righteous wrath. So we too need hope. Our need is great. And so our need for hope is great. And not just any hope will do. The hope required in the face of our sin and in the face of God's righteous wrath upon that sin is nothing less than the biblical hope we've been talking about. We need nothing less than God-given, joyful and confident expectation that God's glory would be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. Let's continue to unfold this hope a little more. We've seen that because our need is great, the requirement for hope in the face of that need is also great. But what does that hope look like? What is that hope made of? What, of what does it consist? When God mixes up a batch of that hope, what ingredients does he use? Point number two is the recipe for hope. What is the recipe for hope? So at this point, maybe you're wondering something along the lines of, wait a minute, didn't this guy already tell me what hope is? Didn't he define it already multiple times? Didn't he say hope is God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory would be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people? Yes, yes, I did say that multiple times. <clears throat> what I want to do now, though, is to look at some of the specifics of exactly what it was that Simeon was hoping for 
And as we do that, we're going to unpack the last part of that definition, God's glory demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. Looking through the passage, we can answer the question, what was Simeon hoping for? In other words, what is Simeon's hope made of? What is the recipe for hope? We can list off the ingredients in the recipe for Simeon's hope pretty quickly. We can start by going right back to verse 25, which we've already mentioned. Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. So ingredient one, consolation of Israel. Verse 26, he's looking for the Lord's Christ, if you will. Ingredient two, the Lord's Christ. Verse 30, he's looking for God's salvation. Verse 32, he's looking for the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people Israel. It turns out that all these ingredients, all these ingredients are wrapped up in one, one package. They're all found in Messiah. I was interested to discover that the phrase consolation of Israel in verse 25, that in Simeon's day was a phrase that was in common use among the Jews at that time to refer to Messiah, consolation of Israel. It means Messiah, Messiah, the one to be the everlasting consolation of God's people. Simeon is looking for this consolation. He's looking for God to send someone to come to Israel's aid and comfort, as we mentioned. He's looking for an advocate sent to come to Israel's defense. In verse 26, Luke uses the name the Lord's Christ. And Christ, again, Christ means Messiah. Christ is our English word for the Greek Christos, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed. The name comes from the, from the verb, which means to anoint. Uh, Masha. It means Messiah. So both of those two things point to Messiah. And in the blessing that Simeon says over Jesus in verses 30 through 32, Simeon identifies this Messiah, the anointed one, as the one who is to be God's salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. Simeon's uh, blessing refers to the prophecies of Isaiah, which were read this morning as we lit the Advent candle. Uh, Isaiah, like Malachi, uh, spoke out against Israel's sin. Isaiah said in chapter 1 of his, of his book, Alas, sinful nation, he addresses Israel. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. They have abandoned the Lord. We saw that in Malachi as well. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. And the people are in judgment because of this. Uh, Isaiah goes on to say, chapter 1, verse 7, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation is overthrown by strangers. And then keep going through Isaiah. You get to chapter 8. It says that the, the wicked, the wicked will be enraged. They will curse their king. They will curse their God. They, as they face upward, it says, they will look upward and curse God. <clears throat> then they will look to the earth, and behold, they will see only distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. So a pretty bleak picture that Isaiah is painting. But then, as we go into chapter 9, and really there shouldn't be a chapter break there, between 8 and 9 of Isaiah, Isaiah holds out hope for Israel. Beginning chapter 9, verse 1, again, we read this morning, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of, 
land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness. So closing chapter 8 is talking about darkness and anguish. And he says, there will be no more gloom, no more anguish. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That hope, that light for those in a dark land, that revelation to Israel and to the Gentiles will come as a child. Go down Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a radical, radical prophecy, the prophecy to which Simeon is referring, that a child will be born, and that that child will be, that child will be the mighty God, the Father of eternity. God himself, Isaiah is, Isaiah is telling us, and telling Simeon as well, God himself will come to save his people, to bring peace, and to sit on the throne of David forevermore. This is a tall, tall order an astounding recipe for hope. This is Messiah, Mashiach. As I introduced the requirement for hope, I noted that something was wrong with Simeon's world. I referred to the promises of old that God made to Israel, that Israel would be a great nation, that Israel's kingdom would be established forever, that through Israel all the world would be blessed. Mashiach is the one anointed to fulfill all these promises. But the fulfillment was not a military rebellion or a political coup. That's because, as we've noted, the root problems were not a corrupted throne or a failed political state. The root problem was sin and the coming judgment of God upon a sinful people. So when Messiah came to be God's salvation, verse 30, back to Luke 2, it was to save God's people from sin and from judgment. It's a tall order to fill. It's an astounding recipe for hope. And with 2020 hindsight and the New Testament scriptures in our hands, it's easy to see that Jesus answers to every single ingredient in the recipe. He is the light of Revelation in verse 32. A light shining in the dark land in Isaiah. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the glory of Israel, and not Israel only, but he is the glory of God himself. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he is God's salvation. The angel told Joseph that Mary will be a son, sorry, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is God's salvation. In fact, Jesus' name means God is salvation. Jesus is the Lord's Christ, the anointed one, as was testified to his transfiguration when a bright cloud overshadowed him and a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen, listen to him. And he is also the consolation of Israel and not only of Israel, but of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. 
John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. There's that word, paraclete. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. But Jesus is the consolation of Israel and for the whole world. What is the recipe for hope? The short answer is the recipe for hope, make it easy for you, the recipe for hope is Jesus. So hope is more than a conviction or an expectation or an assurance. <clears throat> At the very root of hope, hope is a person, and that person is Jesus. When we say that hope is a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory would be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people, it's vitally important to understand that what we really mean when we say God's glory demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people is, simply put, Jesus. And the recipe for hope is not wishful thinking. It's not a positive attitude. It's not a full bank account. It's not an insurance policy. It's not the success of our children or our grandchildren. It's not environmental sustainability. It's not a system of religious beliefs even. It's not even sound theology, not even ultimately the salvation of our souls from sin and judgment. In the final analysis, there's really only one ingredient in the recipe for hope, the person of Jesus Christ. Hope is Jesus. God become flesh to save his people and in so doing, bring all glory and praise and honor to his great name. That's what, or I should say who, Christmas time is all about. And that's who we look to this morning as we enter into the Advent season. So we've seen the requirement for hope that arises because of sin and God's judgment. And the recipe for hope is salvation from sin and judgment in the person of Jesus, the paraclete, the, con the consolation of Israel. But how do, does one come to understand this? How do we know that we need hope? How do we know in whom hope is provided? And how do we recognize hope when we see it? We can look to Simeon as our example. How did Simeon know what or who he was looking for? It's an easy question to answer. If you're familiar with the, the passage, Simeon, Simeon had supernatural assistance. Look at what verse 25 says. It says that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And in verse 26, it tells us that it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And in verse 27, it tells us that he came, what? In the Spirit, into the temple. Three times, we're told. Simeon knew what he was looking for. He knew what hope was. And he came to the temple looking for it. And he recognized hope when he saw it because the Spirit of God was upon him. He recognized hope because the Spirit of God had revealed it to him. And that's point number three, the revelation of hope. <clears throat> hope. Hope is revealed by the Holy Spirit. During Simeon's day, <clears throat> there was anticipation of Messiah. There were various men who sought to lay claim to Messiahship and who developed followings. Some of this activity is even mentioned in the Bible, in Acts 5, where there's a respected Jewish teacher and leader, Gamaliel, who speaks there as, as though he were, he were open to the possibility that Messiah's advent might be expected at that time. And there's good reason that there was expectation at that time. It's because about 530 years before Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel, 
And yeah, that's the very one who announced Jesus' conception to Mary. The angel Gabriel visited a prophet by the name of Daniel, and he told him of the coming Messiah. And Gabriel gave dates, 530 years before Jesus was born. It's recorded in Daniel 9, in verse 25, Gabriel says, So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. These seven and 62, or 69 weeks in total, spoken of by Gabriel, were 69 weeks of years, not weeks of days. In other words, 69 times seven, a little early for math, but 483 years. And there are three or four possible decrees that correspond to that issuing of a decree that Gabriel mentioned. They're recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah that could possibly correspond to the decree that he mentioned. The earliest was around 537 B.C. and the latest around 449 B.C. And without getting into any controversies over the exact interpretation, which there are several, <coughs> we can simply observe one simple thing, that it's a solid Old Testament prophecy that Messiah's time was predicted around the time of Jesus. 483 years from the issuing of this decree. So there's good reason that people were anticipating Messiah's advent. There was good reason for hope. But Simeon had more than simple anticipation. He had more than just wishful thinking, more than a positive outlook. Simeon had confidence that this baby, this baby that he was holding in his hands, was God's salvation. And why did Simeon have that confidence? He had that confidence because it had been revealed to him by God. And that's why I say hope is God-given, the beginning of our definition. Hope, biblical hope, it comes from God. It's a gift from God. Now the world, the flesh, and the devil, they would have us believe that hope comes from within us, that we drum it up ourselves. But we are not the originators of our hope. Hope is a gift from God. Paul tells us, what do we have? What do we have that we have not received? In 1 Corinthians 4. What do we have that we have not received? God, God gives us many good gifts. Among them, Paul tells us 1 Corinthians 13, among them, love, faith, and yes, hope. And Luke tells us very clearly here that Simeon has hope that he would see Messiah because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. God gave him this hope. And interestingly, there was another Simeon who recognized Jesus as Messiah in a similar way about 30 years later. You see, the name Simeon comes to us through a Latinization. Follow, you don't have to follow me here, but Latinization of the Greek for the original Hebrew name. original Hebrew name is Shimon. Shimon, in some places it's translated Simeon. other places it's translated Simon. And you know Simon, Simon son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon who Jesus called Peter. This Simon, Simeon, Peter, he also recognized Jesus as Messiah. And it's interesting to look at what happened there. It's in Matthew 16. And we read that Jesus was asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that, that the Son of Man is? And, and they say, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, well, who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter, another Simeon, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Simeon, Simon, sorry, Peter, know that Jesus was the Messiah? Jesus said it straight out. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I found that very interesting. Simeon and Simon, Shimon, both, recognized hope, recognized Jesus as Messiah, because God revealed it to them. And it's true with every believer that hope in Messiah, recognizing Jesus as Messiah, is a gift from God. God gives us hope by his grace. And one more scriptural support for that. It's exactly what Paul writes. You want to write this reference down, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. Paul says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us, given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. As God has given us comfort and good hope by his grace. God has given believers eternal comfort and good hope. Hope is a gift of God by his grace. So, we've said that we've re-redefined hope. Said that it is God-given, joyful, confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. We've seen that we need hope. There's this requirement for hope because of our sin and God's judgment. We've seen that the recipe for hope is the demonstration of God's glory in the eternal salvation of his people from that sin and judgment, and that its recipe is Jesus. We've seen that the revelation of hope is accomplished by the work of the Spirit in our hearts. So that hope, therefore, is a gift of God. Now I want to consider the reason, the reason for hope. If hope is a confident expectation, what is the reason for our confidence? And God left us some clues in the story of Simeon's hope to answer that question. The clues are the names, two clues, names of two hopeful servants in this passage. First, there's Simeon. I've already told you that in Hebrew, the name is Shimon, but I didn't tell you what that name means. We have to go back, way back to the story of Leah, Rachel, and Jacob in Genesis 29 to find out. As you remember, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel was the favored wife, and Jacob had been tricked into marrying Leah. And Genesis 29 tells us plainly, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah desired her husband's love. And the Lord saw that Leah Leah was unloved and blessed her with children. Her second child was Simeon, or Shimon. And Genesis 29.33, we read, Then Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son. And so she named him Shimon. The name Simeon, Shimon, derives from the Hebrew word shama, which means to hear, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. In the first century, uh, Simeon, or, or Simon, it turns out was the most popular male name for Palestine, Palestine Jews. But I don't think that it was a coincidence that Simeon was the name of the man 
who took Jesus in his arms at the temple that day. Simeon's name is a reminder to us that God hears. And there is a reason, that that, and that is a reason for hope. God hears. God hears, and not only does he hear, he answers. God hears, and he sends a child, as he did for Leah. That's the story in Genesis. It's also the story here in Luke. But there's another layer. There's probably other layers that I'm not going to peel back. But there's another layer. It's not just Simeon's name that reminds us of the reason to hope. It's also Anna's name. And I wanted to bring her into focus for just a minute. Did you know that there's only one Anna in the Bible? It's the Anna here in Luke. But that's not entirely true. There's Anna in Luke, but there's also Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. And Anna is from the Greek. Hannah is the Hebrew name brought directly over into English. But they're the same name. Anna, Hannah. And there's only one in each testament. One Hannah in the Bible, Hannah the mother of Samuel, and one Anna, the one we have here in Luke. And Hannah, if you remember the story, like Leah, wanted a son. Unlike Leah, Hannah had a loving husband, but her husband, like Jacob, had two wives. And Hannah's husband, sorry, Hannah's husband's other wife, Penina, had children, but Hannah had none. And Penina would mock and scorn Hannah for years because she had no children. And Hannah wept bitterly. Penina's mocking and scorning and therefore Hannah's sorrow were particularly intense when the family would go to the temple to worship. There's a turning point in the story when Hannah's husband encourages her to find her joy in his love and not in her own productivity. And that seems to spur Hannah to bring her sorrow to the Lord. And as she's presenting her request for a son to the Lord in the temple, the priest Eli sees her pouring out her soul to God, and he says to her, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you your petition, sorry, petition that you have asked of him. And it came about, in due time we read, that Hannah gave birth to a son, and she named him, you know the name? Samuel. She named him Samuel because I have asked of the Lord. So Hannah was barren. She wanted a son. She cried to God. God heard her cry. God answered her cry and gave her a son. And she named her son Samuel. Turns out Samuel is derived from two words. The first, I was, didn't know this, get, it's Shema, the same um, as Simeon. It's the same word. Shema, or heard, or has heard, or hear. But Simeon means he has heard. Samuel is a compound word. It comes from Shema and El, and the El refers to Elohim, or God. So Samuel means God hears, or heard of God. So in both of these, these um, uh, saints here in Luke 2, we have uh, both of these saints who rejoice over Jesus' advent. We have this double reminder that what? God hears. God hears. Simeon, he has heard, and Samuel, God has heard. God hears the cries of a troubled and a barren people. And we also have the reminder, not only does he hear, but he answers. And a reminder that this ultimate answer would come in the form of a son. Here in Luke 2, it's his one and his only son. See, we worship an omnipresent, all-present, and an omniscient, all-knowing God. 
He hears everything. Nothing, nothing escapes his attention. I think of Exodus 3 and how God heard Israel's cry when they were in bondage in Egypt. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which with, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God heard and God delivered them from bondage and brought them to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. But we know that was only a foreshadowing, a picture of the true and the better salvation and the better blessing to come. Simeon's hope was that God would send Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever to be the eternal salvation of his people. And Simeon had reason to hope, reason to have a confident expectation because God hears. So we've said that the Bible re-redefines hope for us. We've said that there's a requirement for hope. We've seen that the recipe for hope is Jesus. We've seen that he reveals that hope to us by his spirit, that, re- that hope is a gift of God. And we've discovered the reason for hope that we can confidently expect God's salvation because he hears our cry and he answers. So to wrap things up, I want to look at the result of hope. We'll go back one more time to our definition of hope. Hope is a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. The only part of that definition that we haven't touched on just yet is, is the joyful part. Hope is a joyful expectation. And I see joy here in both Simeon and Anna. Joy that springs from two results of hope, peace and thanksgiving. We see peace in Simeon's response. In verse 29, Simeon says simply, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon has peace. Now, you might be tempted to say, Oh, of course he has peace. He got a special and direct revelation from God. And he's seen God miraculously fulfill that promise. But I would be remiss not to remind you here that Simeon really, really hasn't seen anything yet. Right? He's standing there holding a month-old infant. He has no external witness or physical evidence that this baby actually is God's Messiah. Even if there were something external, like even if that instant he saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and heard a voice crying from heaven saying, this is my son, even then, really, Simeon's hope would not be truly fulfilled. Jesus still has to do a lot. He still has to grow to be a man. He still has to live a sinless and righteous life and preach the gospel and tangle with the Pharisees and heal the sick and raise the dead and die himself and rise again. Really, there's still everything to come. Simeon's hope is future tense. And yet Simeon has peace. Likewise, Anna. Anna has thanksgiving. At that very moment, we read in verse 38, Luke 2, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God. And can, began giving thanks to God. Well, let me skip that over. Began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. 
and as in the same boat as Simeon, all is future tense, ex except for maybe one thing. She has Simeon's testimony. But Anna, even though all is future tense, is thankful. So thankful indeed. She is so thankful that she can't stop talking about Jesus. She's thankful that God has redeemed his people. And as we've noted, she has yet to really see Jesus do anything. Anna has hope, a God-given, joyful, and confident expectation that God's glory will be demonstrated in the eternal salvation of his people. Simeon and Anna have joy that comes from hearts at peace with God. They have joy that comes from hearts that are thankful to God. And all they have to go on is the testimony of God's spirit in, in, in their hearts and the testimony of God's word in the Old Testament. But brothers and sisters, we have those same two things. Actually, we have more. We have the entire New Testament. We have the teachings of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the lives and teachings of Peter and Paul and James and John. So that leaves us with some questions to answer. How do you define hope? Have you biblically re redefined hope so that it is not wishful positive thinking, but a confident, confident expectation? Have you recognized that there is a requirement for hope because you have sinned? And apart from the hope in Jesus, you will suffer God's judgment? Does your recipe for hope include wealth or family or friends or church or good works? A new pastor, maybe? Or does your recipe for hope consist of only one ingredient? One, the only one, the only effective ingredient, Jesus the Messiah. Has the Holy Spirit done a work in your heart and revealed hope to you? Has God gifted you the gift of hope? Are you looking to him to supply your hope? Or do you think that you can generate it yourself intellectually through study or emotionally through music or drama? Are you confident in God's salvation? Do you have a reason for hope because you know that God has heard you and has answered you? And are you experiencing the results of hope? Are you at peace because of your hope? Are you ready to depart this world for the next because you are confident in your expectation of eternal life? Are you thankful in hope? So thankful, indeed, that you can't stop telling others about your hope are you always ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect because of the joy and the peace and the thankfulness that you have in your hope? Do you have a joy in your hope that is overflowing? If you know the hope of Jesus this morning, I rejoice with you. And I challenge you at the same time that I'm challenging myself to meditate on the greatness of the hope that we have in Jesus. This Christmas season, let's all think about Simeon and Anna. Think about the relatively little information and the little support available to them compared to the testimony of Jesus Christ that is available to us today. And then think about the strength and the surety of their hope. Can we all say with Simeon that we can now depart this world in peace? Can we, like Anna, not stop talking about Messiah? And where we find our hope lacking, where we find our hope based on something other than Jesus, can we return to him and ask him to give us true, 
unshakable, Christ-centered hope. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the hope of Jesus, think about what we've said. Think about the hope that this world can give. Hope which is really no hope at all because it cannot last. And then think about the eternal hope that is available in God because God sent his son Jesus to save you from sin and from hell. Think on these things and ask questions. Ask a believer to give you a reason for the hope that is in them. And ask God to open your eyes and your ears so you can see and hear and understand and come to know the hope that only Jesus can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you in all humility, acknowledging the, the richness of your word. Lord, it's just an amazing thing to see how over hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years, that you've been telling one story, the story of our, our need for you and the answer provided in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, we have hope. Father, I just pray that this, this Advent season, that we would come to a fuller understanding of that hope and a more confident expectation in that hope. And that our hope would be centered, again, on seeing your glory demonstrated in the salvation of your people. What a miracle it is, salvation, Lord. May we rejoice in it and may we hope in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.